Good morning, Hope, and all visitors. So glad that you're here with us today as our theme is the crucifixion of the God-man that we've been reading through portions of John's gospel. The crucifixion, crucifixion in general, as, as much as our kids are going to go up and, and, and learn some things and enjoy some of that, uh, that teaching in its, in its bare truth, in its real reality, the crucifixion is, is not child's play. It's really not the sort of thing that can be accurately represented by, by moving vegetables on a screen for children or, or that can ever be coloured in accurately by a, a little plush, you know, velvet uh, uh, colourings that we'll have uh, among children. Crucifixion was in fact a, an art form. We're, we're somewhat familiar with it. We're going to remind ourselves of what exactly it was that was suffered by the Lord Jesus Christ on that day in Jerusalem, carried then out to the mountain of Golgotha to die. The crucifixion was was a Roman art form. They had they had basically perfected the the ability to kill somebody with the extreme increase of pain and the extreme extension of time. So that somebody was held on on what they call excruciating. Do you know that 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 word is actually invented because they needed a name for something that was as painful as the cross. The word excruciation means out from the cross. We only have a a word for this extreme maximal pain a human being can experience because of the art form of the Romans. They, They were able to hold somebody on the verge of death in extreme pain, the kind of pain that would normally kill someone. They were able to hold them there for days at a time through this art form crucifixion. Jesus' suffering, in fact, started on the Thursday night. It would have been equivalent for us last night, 2,000 and something years ago. He had had his meal with his friends, and the suffering started there. His, his heart was overcome with grief as his friend, his disciple, Judas, betrayed him, sat at the seat of honor in his table that Jesus hosted, and then left so as to go and purchase a, a, a betrayal price of 30 pieces of silver, and then as Jesus left uh, the dinner room, the, the last supper room where they had Passover and went across the valley and into a garden, a secret garden where they, they gathered to pray as he prayed the, the weight of the burden of what was about to happen, knowing full well what he was about to receive. John's gospel tells us that he knew all things that were to be done to him. It was with that full knowledge that he was suffering in prayer, that he was alone in the garden, and that he was uh, sweating great drops of blood, a a medical condition we now understand as as somebody at the extent, the fullest degree of anxiety and stress is overcome, and their capillaries and their sweat glands are are so opened up in distress that they they, uh, they are so dilated that they mix together and and blood comes out of the sweat glands. And here's Jesus, his, his robe now covered in his own blood as he sweats in this garden simply because he's thinking about what is going to happen. It hasn't even started yet. And then from there he was betrayed. We read in John's gospel that Judas uh, leads in the army that they didn't need. He was, he was going to be going willingly, but they brought an army and simply with the, with the profession of his name, he borrows from the Old Testament uses the Greek phrase and uses God's own name, Yahweh, for himself. They say, we're here for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And what is this crowd of 600-something men with clubs and swords and, and shields? What do they do? They all fall back at the, simply, at the simple mention of his own divine name. Just as a clue from the very beginning of this account, 
no one is forcing Jesus to do anything. Absolutely nobody is killing Jesus in the true sense of the word. What we need to realize is that Jesus himself here is not merely a a political victim. He's not merely a a man being taken. He is the God-man submitting and yielding to a voluntary crucifixion for the sake of others. Philippians 2 reads like this. It tells us that Jesus did not count... Equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be held onto. He did not remain in, in heaven or, or even in his humanity, grasping onto all the privileges that he deserved. Rather, it says, that, uh, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This, this man that is being arrested, this man that has been betrayed, this man that will be crucified is unlike any other man that has ever been crucified because, because he is in fact the eternal God in human flesh, in the, in the fullness of human nature. He has a human mind and soul and, and spirit and body and emotions and, 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 and sensory uh, feelings. He is a true man. This is, this is not that he's become this third category. That God is in heaven, mankind is down on earth, and Jesus has become this, this cordial mix of both water and cordial, right? It, this is not how we picture the, 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 the human divine nature of Jesus. They are joined in the one person, two natures joined in one person, but never mixed. It's not as if he was human, but superhuman. It's not as if he was merely a demigod. It is that he is true God somehow inhabiting the true experience and reality of a human body, mind, and soul. This is the God-man. The only way that we, we, we can say it is just throw the words together because there's no, no real English way or, or, or human way of explaining what he was. He was the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, sent from heaven for our salvation. So that every, every beating, every bit of suffering that Jesus undertakes this day is, as Philippians has said, the voluntary yielding of himself to the will of the Father. Here's what Philippians 2 goes on to say. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. As if God down to human was not enough, he humbled himself even further. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. It would have been an amazing condescension of God if he became a human and simply sat on the throne above every throne and received worship forever and ever by sinful humans. Do you know that that would be an infinite condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ? He deserves far greater than that. And yet that would have been a condescension. But he didn't come to do that. He came and being found in his human form, he was not worshipped. There was... There was that inkling at the beginning of his life as he was born that the shepherds came and worshipped and some eastern magicians came and followed a star and gave him. There was a snippet of worship and then he was chased and then he was hated and then he was maligned and considered as just another person and, and a fool at that. Jesus came down and was humbled, obedient to the will of God, even to the point of dying a human death and not only that, but dying the death On the cross, Philippians says. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no death, even to today, there is no death worse than the death on the cross. 
They, 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 he started out, of course, being arrested and he was brutalized. And, and the, you know, the, 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 the police of the, of, the, of the Jews, they were rough with him and they, and they shoved him around and they threw him onto the cobblestone. So he's got grazes and maybe a black eye at this point. And, and he's gone through this, this fake trial where they, they just, they're just throwing out cash prizes for whoever's got a, uh, a, a claim against this guy that'll sound half legit and, and not being able to condemn him yet, they send him to another trial. The same thing happens there. He, he says one thing that is righteous and just and he gets smacked in the mouth for it. So now he's got, he can taste his own blood and, and then he goes from there over to Pilate. What happens in Pilate's place. In, in Pilate's uh, uh, judgment, Pilate simply looks at him and assesses him and discusses with him and, and he's confused by this man who says that he has a kingdom that is not of this world and that he has been handed over by an authority far above Pilate, Herod or Caesar. And he's confused. Pilate doesn't know what to make of that. You know what he says? He goes, what is truth? <laughs> and he walks back out to the Jews and simply tells them that I find no guilt in this man. I'll, I'll let him go for you. Uh, in fact, it's Passover. We, you Jews have a holiday. In every holiday, I keep you happy by releasing back to you one of your criminals. Look, here's a, here's murderer, uh, a rabble, a little uh, Barabbas over here. And, and here's this Jesus fellow. Why don't you pick one? I'll give him back. And of course, it'll be Jesus. And what do they cry out? Give us Barabbas. And, and Pilate says, well, what, what do you want done with Jesus? And they say, crucify him. Subject him to the worst imaginable pain, death, and suffering that you have devised. Subject him to that. And, and Pilate is disgusted. This tells us of something. When, when a teenage boy is disgusted by something, you know it's, it's gross. When a teenage boy who's, who's going through puberty says to you, that person smells, they're probably dead. When, when a Roman says, whoa, crucifixion's a bit extreme, you know that it is an extreme, magnificent amount of pain. And so Roman uh, 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 Pilate says, what, what has he done? He's, he's not deserving of that. That's reserved for the worst political enemies, for the, for the greatest sinners. We, we don't just do this to, 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 to small-scale rebels or people who have inconvenienced your Jewish traditions. But to keep them happy, Pilate takes him out back and subjects him to the dogs. You know, Psalm 22 calls it the, the bulls and the dogs that surround him and nip at him and bite at him. And, and this is how it was fulfilled that Jesus was thrown into a ring of, of ravenous wolves called, called Roman soldiers. And they strapped it, or well, they beat him first, and they, and they mocked him, and they, his eyes would have been blackened and full, his mouth full of blood, his, his, his ribs sore, and, and then he was thrown onto, a, onto what would have been a kind of a, a post on the ground, and his hands would have been chained to it so that his back was exposed. And they each took out their, their cat of nine tails, the, the Roman whips with the ball bearings and the, and the hooks of bone and the metallic scraps that were tied into the leather so that as they, they beat the man, they would, they would bruise the ribs. They would damage internal organs, causing internal bleeding. And, and of course, the hooks of this whip would simply rip off chunks of blood, exposing bone and organs. And when they've got him on the back almost entirely uh, uh, brutalized, they turn the man over with his hands above his head and his stomach exposed and they whip his chest and his ribs and his stomach and his thighs and here he is this this bloody mess of a human being Isaiah 52 prophesies this moment by saying we looked at him and he did not even look human let alone like a king of glory 
He didn't even look human. He looked like he'd been, he'd, been, he'd been run over by a train. He's this bleeding, dripping, naked man that they then take, shove this, this fake crown which they've, they've devised out of long thorns. They shove it down onto his skull so that the, the thorns poke through and, 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 and they, they kneel him and they put a purple robe over him. One of the centurions offers up his robe because it looks kind of royal. They put it on him. They give him a stick in his hand and they pretend to worship him. And then because they're real men, they, they mask him so he can't see them and they take turns walking up and striking him with a stick and uppercutting him and smacking him in the mouth and saying, come on, prophesy, prophet. Who is it that hit you? And he knew. He knew every one of their names. He knew every one of their sins. He knew every one of their lives and yet he went through it because he was the God-man subjecting himself to this. This is the death of the God-man. Look at 1 John chapter 4. This will be the the, the focus of our consideration this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle John says this, In this is the, lo- the, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen? Amen. This, is the, this is the love of God. That as Jesus was there suffering and being beaten, he was then stood up, And he was given the larger, well, he was taken back to the crowd and a few more rounds of this went on. And they called out for his crucifixion. Pilate thought, if they're bloodthirsty, I'll give them some blood. And they give to him this scourged, disgusting, brutalized human being. And he says, behold, the man. And they call out even then, give us his blood. We want crucifixion. Pilate in cowardice gives to him the the crossbar of the cross and makes him carry it up the hill. He can't make it, his his mouth is parched, he hasn't drunk anything in 12 plus hours, he's he's losing blood and fluids all over the place, his brain is dehydrated of electrolytes, he cannot make sense of what is going on, he faints and they get the African Simon of Cyrene to carry it up the the hill for him and Jesus hobbles along behind, limping and, and when he's there they lay him down on the cross, they tie his arms and his legs down and they put these, the huge nails, we, we know the type, right through the, the bones, through the veins, through the nerves, through the ligaments of the wrist on both sides. His, he would be in, involuntarily convulsing at this point because of pain, dehydration, and the striking of the nerves. One through his feet, they put a sign above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, in all languages, so that everybody can read it. The Jews didn't like that. But Pilate said, put up with it, that's the sign I've made. And how, how ironic, how true it actually was. The God-man is the king of the Jews. The God-man is not just king of the Jews, he's king of the universe. And this is how he receives his kingdom. And there he is, he was put up onto the cross, the, the, the beam set in its place, probably naked, possibly covered, urinating, bleeding, sweating, suffering. The theologians call this a very apt Uh, a title for this section of his ministry called the humiliation of Christ. It is absolutely, incomprehensibly humiliating. 
He might have been at eye level. That's how many people, uh, uh, criminals were crucified, at eye level, so that you could mock them and jeer them and spit on them. Maybe he was lifted up higher. We don't know. But Jesus was utterly, utterly humiliated. And at no point are we allowed to think that he was being forced. He was not being subjected. He was subjecting himself. He was humbling himself to the point of cro- the death and even death on a cross. Jesus was volunteering. Jesus was our Savior, the God-man, yielding to the will of God for our salvation. John says that this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is the, this is the first point that we're going to uh, seek to understand as we see this battered, disgusting, bloodied God-man on the tree. And your question will be, why? Why this? Or, or, or what could we consider of this? What does this teach us? And the first thing that John wants us to know is that this is the love of God for you. And I'm speaking especially to you who are unsaved, invited here by a friend. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian household. Maybe you've been called a Christian. You're, you're even a baptized member and, and you even know some stuff. But you know deep down you are still in your sin. You are far off and you are not a true Christian. Were you to die this afternoon, you would not be met with open arms of the Father. You would be cast into hell. Friends, my love, my heart, my thoughts, my prayers are for you right now. In this picture of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, John tells us, inspired by the Spirit of God, that on the cross the Son of God was showing us the love of God the Father. There are so many definitions of love today. The only reason that is, is because we step off of, off of biblical authority and we all come up with our own definitions of love. And, and for some, it's, it's twisted sexual reality and it's just fornication and that's love, me doing whatever I want. For others, love is tolerance and and, and accepting everybody else for doing whatever they want and casting no judgment. For some, love means means that God leaves me alone because he owes me something. He made a mistake making this world, giving me the the, the suffering that he gave to me. If, If I had one moment with him, I'd have words with him and he'd apologize. You know what love looks like? Kind of kind of like a negligent father who on your 19th birthday tries to come back into your life because you've got a well-paying job now, and what do you say? Back off. The best thing you can do for me now, after your years of failure, is stay away. Some people will think that's God's love. You you might believe in God, but, but you have him to blame for everything around you, and so his love means staying away. Others of you, love of God will mean that no matter what I do, I'll just try my hardest, and God owes it to me to accept me on judgment day. That's, 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 that, that, that's the, 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 the kind, therapeutic, very common religion of Christianity that some people try and buy into. God loves you. You're great. You're a good person. God has no qualms with you. He just, he adores you. And you know what? You do your best. And on the last day, he'll bring you, in, you into heaven no matter what. That's not love. Love is not that God looks at us in our sin and tolerates it. Love is not that God looks at us in our sin and allows us or empowers us to live in our sin. Love is not that God doesn't get in our way. Love is not that God doesn't insult or judge us. Love is that judging us and assessing us and seeing our sin, he comes into the world through his son so that we might live through him. So that instead of living in our sin, he says you need to die and be born again and live in Christ. He says that the way you are living is no life, it is death but my son will come so that your dead lifestyle, your dead sin, your dead soul can be put away and you can live in me through him. That, that is the love of God. And we see in this this crucifixion scene on Good Friday, we see the extent, 
the depths, the, the deep well of love that is in the heart of God. Have you ever thought as you, as you look at the cross, I, I, again, I'm addressing you especially non-Christians, you who know that you're, you have not yet been washed of your sins or cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Do you, do you realize that when you look at the cross, yes, you see the, the sins of, of men who are murdering this righteous person, this, this innocent person. You see the cowardice, the, the suffering and all of that. Do you see the love of Jesus though for you? For you. The love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus that came from heaven into humankind, into our nature, and just lived all of the normal sufferings of life. It seems he lost his father at a young age. He would have got bullied like others. He had to learn things. He had to suffer through the, the losses of life and the seasons. And he was in poverty with his mother in, in rural Gal Galilee. There's all these things that he suffered. But, but especially see here, volunteering. <laughs> In one of the other Gospels, we see that as Simon takes out his sword and he strikes off the ear of the high priest's servant, no doubt he wasn't aiming for that guy's ear. He was going for the high priest. The servant stood in the way and Simon just can't throw a good, you know, a good shot. So he chops the dude's ear off. That's all that happened. As he does that, Jesus tells him, put the sword back in the sheath, pocket your Glock. That's not how this works. Don't you know that at any moment... I could simply utter a word and 12 legions of angels, that is 12 groups of 12,000 angels, could come down to this earth and save me. Do you remember what one angel did back in the, in the, in the days of the prophets when, when the Syrians were outside in the hundreds of thousands and there was 180,000 of them slown in one night because of one angel? One angel came from heaven, butchered them all, zipped back up, an easy afternoon's work. How many, how much damage, how much freedom and safety for the Messiah would 12 times 12,000 angels be able to procure? And Jesus says, that's not what's going to happen. I'm submitted. This is my choice. Isaiah 53 tells us that when he gives his life as an offering for sin, it is him that is pouring himself out on the altar of sacrifice for us today. Consider the mercy, the mercy of Jesus. That is every person who, who he can see eye to eye, who he knows their voice because he's their creator, and they strike him or hit him or, 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 or deal harsh blows against his head or whip flesh off of his back or, or whatever it is that they're doing. And at any moment, he looks at them and refrains from calling heaven's angels down refrains from simply clicking and making them disappear into a mist of blood because he's their creator. They're held together by his own will. Yet he, he extends in mercy and so it is to you. Jesus went through these things in mercy to you, lost sinner, because he came to the world to seek and save that which is lost and this is what it costs. Think, think also of the endurance of Jesus. It it wasn't a moment of a Valentine's Day expensive gift that he later regrets kind of love. This wasn't that Jesus came and did something amazing for a moment and didn't have to live with his consequences. We're thinking 12 plus hours of excruciating suffering and pain. And at every second, his human nature and will and flesh wanted to bow out, wanted to escape wanted to do what the men around him were telling him to do. You can save others, why don't you save yourself? Nothing was more tempting to Jesus than that in that moment. And yet he endured every step up the hill, 
Every, every, every step up the huge hill to Golgotha where he would be crucified, he went and he endured with such great perseverance for you. And consider the, the mercy and grace of Jesus on the cross. Every time he speaks, he has to leverage himself on the nails to be able to project enough air through his lungs. Every speech is painful because of the bruised, brutalizing, bleeding mouth. Maybe he's lost teeth at this point. The, the lungs are sore. His neck has been brutalized. Everything hurts to even speak. He's thirsty and parched. His lungs are filling with blood. He has near no energy. He's making almost no coherence of the things around him but by the Spirit of God upholding him. And in that state, what does he do? He uses the effort that he can muster to assure a dying thief beside him that he will be in paradise. You know, it, it, it's a marvel to me because that man had expressed his faith. Jesus could have just let the guy die in mystery and wake up in paradise. You're not saved because you hear the fact that you're saved from somebody else. He had faith. He could have been saved and go to heaven. But with his, with his mercy, Jesus didn't want this man to die like Jesus was dying. With, with, with pain. And so he wanted him to die in grace and under the assurance of God's love. And so he musters his strength to tell him, you'll be with me today in paradise. So oh, what else does he do? Dying on the cross. He, he speaks out. He musters his energy just to tell his beloved friend, John, look after my mother. Mother... Consider John your son. In his death, in his death, he's, he's looking after his mother. And this is the kind of mercy that we have in Jesus. Jesus is judge. Jesus is king. Jesus is glorious and holy and, and all of those wonderful things. But Jesus is filled to the brim with mercy in a well that has no bottom. And for you, sinner, for you, every non-Christian, Jesus is putting on display, according to John, the love of God put on display for you, so that mercy, salvation, and forgiveness is simply, a, is simply an arm, arm length away. In fact, the way that Paul says it in Romans is, it's already in your mouth. You don't even need to go get it. You don't need to go and receive the, uh, the gospel from somewhere. If you've heard it, it's right there. Just, just let the bread of life fall into your soul. That's all it is. Simply believe Jesus. Jesus is the one that has gone over every hurdle, come over every wall, and removed every barrier for salvation so that you can today be saved in a moment if you simply receive that mercy. Simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply, simply call to him and say, yes, I want your salvation. This is the love of God, John says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. There's a second thing that John wants us to see that, that is assumed in this, in this passage. And look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. We did not love God. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Preaching the gospel of the good news of Jesus, God loved you, he'll save you, he'll take you to his eternal abode and give you a, a new body in the new heaven and new earth. All of that, to John, makes no sense if it is disconnected from the fact that you understand you are a lost, guilty, miserable sinner. If you don't understand that, you hear me say, God loved you, and you go, yeah, me too. We're similar in that. I'm, I'm pretty great. I have harsh parents. I have mean friends. I know religious people that judge me, but I love me. And it's good to hear that me and God agree. 
We say, here is the love of God that he gave his son to die so that we might live through him. And we say, well, that's great. I needed to top me up. I needed a help to go from my tremendous, amazing, glorious life to the next phase of, of being loved and empowered by God. I'm so glad I came to church this morning. No. John requires that you understand that you need to live through him because otherwise you are condemned for eternity in your sin. That you did not love God, he loved us. That not loving God is what we call sin. Loving all things other than God. Delighting in everything other than God. And he came, Jesus, to be not just some kind of wishy-washy hallmark example, like a, like a great Nicholas Sparks movie, where he comes and he suffers for his, teen, his, his high school sweetheart, and he dies, and, and therefore she gets saved. That's, that's not all it is. It's not just a, a story, an example, or an analogy of love. Jesus was achieving salvation from your sins. We, we need to spend a little bit of time on that before we, before we move on and eventually close out. The idea is this, that we are sinners from birth until death. Adam was our first father. He was the head of our human race and our representative. And he, he sinned in the Garden of Eden against God. And therefore, he was cast out of God's presence. He was cursed so that every single person that came from him, guess what? We're just like him. We are born already guilty because our representative sinned. We're born with a guilty, uh, guilty record and a guilty case before God. But not only that are we guilty, we're also corrupt. That in the curse of sin, God has removed the upright standing perfection that he created Adam with. So that from the very first moment you, you feel, you feel sin. From the very first moments that you desire, you're desiring sinful things. As you grow up and you want things, desire things, dream about things, hope for things, you're hoping sinful things. The, the natural inclination of your sin is towards sex, theft, adultery, lying, stealing, coveting, doing all those things that the law of God says are sin. So here's the third reason. You, you're born guilty, you're born corrupt, and your nature is, is, is corrupt. And thirdly, you're, you, you live a life willfully and voluntarily breaking the law of God. The law of God that, that maybe you've read in the Bible, you went to a Christian school, or you know the Ten Commandments, or, or maybe it's merely the law of God that he wrote in your mind. Don't blaspheme. Give me a day of worship. Don't steal. Don't, don't worship different gods. Don't dishonor parents. Don't commit adultery and sexually fornicate. Don't covet. Don't lie. Don't steal. All these things, they're in your mind. You know they are. And you live against them. At, a, at every possible moment, you break the law of God. Whether sometimes it feels good, sometimes it feels bad, the point is that you know yourself to be breaking the deepest law that God has put within you. That's, that's part of what sin is. And the, the climax of sin, the, 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 the essence of sin, is that it condemns you before God is that when you die, and you will die because you're a sinner, when you die, you then go into eternal punishment for a payment of those sins before God. That, that your sin has earned for you what Jesus went through for eternity. When we see the death of Jesus, we, we need to think that it was an eternal torment of punishment owed to people, squished and quenched and concentrated into those hours of his suffering. But, but for us, we're not the God-man, are we? You're, you do not have the, the value of God in human nature. You're not, you're not a human with eternal and infinite merit. 
You're simply a human with demerits, with, with corruption, and therefore you will not be able to pay for your sins in the worst of sufferings in hell over 12 hours. You will have to, I will have to, if, if dying in my sins, have to suffer for all of eternity because that is how long a mere mortal takes to pay off an infinite debt. This is the hatred of God against sin. This is what the Bible calls the wrath of God. It's, it's not merely that he doesn't like the concept. It's that he doesn't like people. He doesn't, he doesn't love sin-filled people. He, he loves everybody in the sense that he created us and he sent his son to die for us that we might live through him. Oh, the love of God is infinite and amazing. And yet, let's not insult the love of God to say that he loves you even as he punishes you in, in hell. Now, He's loved you to be merciful. He's loved you by giving His Son. He has loved you by blessing you in so many ways in this life. But those who keep to their deathbed a refusal to bend the knee and a hatred toward God, the Bible calls them enemies of God. And He pours out His hatred upon them in hell. This is the wrath of God against sin. So that in the cross of Jesus, John wants us to see the love of God put on display but also the hatred of God against sin to such a degree. Now, it, it might make sense if the Bible told us this story that Satan collected up all the sin of sinful humanity and placed it on his shoulders and marched into the presence of God. And what did God do? Well, we know how that ends, of course. God destroyed him. He hates sin. What if a human being made in God's own image a, a child of God by nature kind of, kind of thing. A, a, a person, a, a perfect human being was born of man and woman and somehow, maybe it's Adam, we don't know. Let's imagine a perfect human. If they were to take all the sin into their account, they were to become responsible for the world's sin, would God even destroy them? Yes, God would even destroy one that he made in his own image. And we would, we would step back and say, God, God must really hate sin. But when the God-man, Jesus Christ perfect, undefiled, unblemished Lamb of God, the Son of God, the only begotten and only beloved of God, when He comes dressed in our sin before the Father, is there an ounce of mercy for Him? None. Even then, we see God's blasting wrath, His anger poured out, and our punishment given so that we need to step back even further and say, God must really, truly, absolutely, ultimately, be sworn in his very nature against sin. For look at what he does even to his son dressed in such a garb. In the cross of Jesus, we see the love of God. In the cross of Jesus, we see the sinfulness of sin. But thirdly, and most importantly, in the cross of Jesus, we see what John calls a propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply means the turning away and satisfaction of wrath. Sin is a personal thing to God. It's not some unnamed, impersonal thing. God despises sin personally. It's not just this, this legal law that he's bound to, but he, he hopes he can find a loophole for us. It's God's personal vindictive rage against sin that the Bible calls wrath. 
and, and, and much like, I mean, in, a, in pagan religions, you'll have the, you know, you want to, you've had bad weather and there's been a drought and obviously the, uh, the I don't know, the, the agricultural god Freya has been angry towards us, so how do we propitiate her wrath? How do we make her pleased and happy with us once again? Well, you take a goat and you bleed it and you, you do the sacrifices and the gal wears the horns thing and you sprinkle the blood and whatever you do, you, you need to do something to propitiate God, that God's wrath. In the Old Testament, given by God was a system of doing the same thing to the true God. That you, you have sinned and so you take a lamb or bull or goat or something and you bleed it and you take the, the skin and the entrails and you send them outside the camp to be burned and the rest is splattered on you and, and on the altar and, 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 and you, you're free. And God looks on that and he is propitiated. His wrath, though kindled, is subsided. But there's only ever been one true act of propitiation, some actual propitiation, not simply God saying, I will avert my wrath until a later time. There's only been one time when God has truly expressed and opened the floodgates of his wrath so as to pour it out to its last drop and then him be satisfied. And that is what John says happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. He was not simply an example for how to love people. He was not just an example of here's how a righteous person will live. He was an actual, and I want you to hear me, it is as, as barbaric and as ancient as you think I sound. It is actually that God took Jesus' body and life in place of us, and he punished him personally, really, truly, and legally with the punishment that you and I actually, truly deserved. There was a real, what is called, the great exchange. That, that God looked on Jesus and saw nothing but perfection. And he looked on us and saw nothing but imperfection. And where his justice and his wrath would simply consume us forever, the love of God was made manifest that he sent his son that we might live through him. And in this is the love of God, that he sent his son to be the wrath-bearing substitute for us. That he took up that wrath of sin, that, 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 that guilt of sin, the condemnation of sin, the pollution of sin, and he placed it onto Jesus and took Jesus' righteousness and placed it into our account so that Jesus was treated and reckoned, actually treated by his Father as if he had lived your life, as if he had committed your sins. He'd looked at what you looked at. He'd spoken the way you've spoken. He's mistreated family the way you've mistreated family. He's stolen the way you've stolen. He, he felt a personal responsibility for every one of those because he was made responsible for them. That was his love. But this is the substitute. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what makes Good Friday the most blessed, glorious remembrance that will be remembered, God has marked this sure, from the day that it happened until all of eternity, the greatest emblem of thought, the greatest concentration of thinking, the greatest praises, the most amazing songs for all of eternity will be about surrounding and concentrated on the bloodletting atonement of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, for sinners slain. And that is why Good Friday is such a great day. And, and that is why it is an invitation to every sinner to believe on this day that God has loved you, though you are a horrible sinner. 
And if you remain outside of his love in Jesus, then you will be reckoned guilty and punished as a horrible sinner. But this is the, the, the uncontrollably amazing. I, I wish it was irresistible, and yet I know that the bonds of sin hold many in their seats and hold hearts keeping away from Jesus. But, but may God's Spirit be in us today to be able to, to break those, those bondages of sin that hold people far away from Jesus Christ because you don't need to do anything to pay for your sin. You don't need to spend any time convincing God you're not all that horrible. He knows how horrible you are, and yet in love he sent his son. And in love Jesus came and endured for you. And in that death on the cross, your sins were totally and finally, ultimately paid for. This is the good news of Jesus at Easter. 1 John chapter 4. In this is love. You have not loved God. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God has loved you. God has invited you. God has given you the greatest gift that could be imagined. God has given his love and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Your sins are real, but they have been paid for. Your sins condemn you, but Jesus has been condemned in your place. This is the mystery. This is the glory. This is the message of love of God to sinners. And to every Christian who knows this, this is the joy of your heart. Praise God and hallelujah. But to everybody that does not, may you find today salvation. Maybe you've been standing far off and thinking of it as at a distance. God calls you to come near and be saved. Maybe you've been feeling guilty like nothing could clean you for the things that you have done, but Jesus' blood is more powerful. Some of you, you, you stand far off. You just, you just don't want to commit to the whole thing, but do not commit your soul to hell. Give your soul to Jesus, and he will carry you the whole way through this life. Jesus is merciful. His blood has paid our penalty. Let's pray. <coughs> God, it is, it is inconceivable the amount of love the degree of mercy and the, and the outpouring of grace that Jesus displayed that day on Calvary. That as he hung and he perished, yet even then he was filled with love for sinners. Mercy to his mother. Grace to the thief dying next to him who had believed. And even forgiveness for those who were killing him. Father God, as he prayed out to you, forgive them, Father. They do not know what they are doing. We, we have a glimpse into the heart of Jesus Christ that no matter the cost of himself, he desires that sinners be saved. Father God, would you, would you honor that prayer again in our midst today? Would you honor our prayers as we ask you to save sinners in our midst, those who, have, those who have heard about the cross, those who have known maybe for years about the gospel, those who have attended churches, or those who have not, those who have walked away, those whose family members have invited them here today, Lord, we pray that their souls would not go away unchanged that they would not continue to consider this as a, as a nice fanciful thought that, that some religious people have that gives them peace, but would your spirit reckon with them to see reality, that they would know they are guilty, that they would know where they are going and if they stay in their sin, and that you would give them the faith that clings to the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone, and in him to have hope and assurance and peace because he has loved us and given himself for us. May Jesus be glorified this day and every day because he is the lamb slain for sinners. May he receive glory and dominion and honor and blessing. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.
This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.